Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights on a Wednesday night. I hope everyone is fine and well. Me, I am having a ball. It is a blinding day today. It is cooking on gas. I am in my shorts, flip-flops are off, discarded, and shirt is off. Yes, ladies, the shirt is off, and it's not a pretty sight, but don't worry. There's someone going awfully pale on who's listening to this show, who's sitting on a train or a tube in the early morning going, oh, dear, I feel a bit sick. But yes, the shirt is off. It is a fine day, and I hope you will enjoy what we have got lined up today. But first... Why Your Robot Dog Has Been Recalcitrant by Bruce Boston You feed him too many nuts and bolts, not enough rivets. You scolded him for killing the Doberman who lived next door. You ignore him most of the time, and then expect mutual joyous affection at the oddest, most inopportune moments. He has read far too much Sartre. You can't find the instruction booklet, and the lights blinking suddenly and insistently on his chest mean nothing to you whatsoever. He's never been the same since he lost his tail in the mower. He's been talking with the robot cat. Balticon 39 Poetry Contest, 2005, first place, appeared online. There you go. Thank you, Bruce Boston. Don't forget, Bruce Boston, copyright is all his. And thank you, Julie Davis, again. You are a star. Thank you very much. Do pop over to the website to get links for Julie's Forgotten Classics podcast or pop over to the site for Bruce Boston's new release book. Next, we come on to The Flash Fiction, which is by none other than Spider Robinson. Wow, get that. And I've just heard, actually, which is a bit of good news, to be quite honest, Spider's podcast, his own podcast, is going down to once a month, which is a, a damn shame, to be quite honest. It's You know, like, podcasting is, and especially for listening as well, it's a very singular thing, do you know? But Spider's got this voice that it he kind of comes over as, like, a friend or... Even more than that, everything is good in the world when you listen to kind of Spider Robinson's voice. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm trying to say there? And it's really, you know, it's one of the things where it kind of just comes through the feed and, oh, yes, things are good. Do you know what I mean? When you listen to Spider Robinson, things are all right. And now it's his podcast gone to once a month. You know, and I hope Spider don't make it any later than that. Do you know, but hopefully you will enjoy this tale anyways. Let me know what you think. You know, do pop over to the website, drop us emails on all the stories and stuff we've got going on. 
So I hope you enjoy this. In the olden days. Copyright 1984 by Spider Robinson. George Maum returned home from work much later than usual and in a sour frame of mind. He was tired and knew that he had missed an excellent home-cooked meal, and things had not gone well at work despite his extra hours of labor. His face, as he came through the door, held that expression which would cause his wife to become especially understanding. Light on in the kid's window, he said crankily as he hung his coat by the door and removed his boots. It's late. Luanna Maum truly was an extraordinary woman. With only a minimal use of her face and the suggestion of a shrug and the single word, Grandpa, she managed to convey amusement and irony and compassion and tolerant acceptance and thereby begin diffusing his potential grumpiness. He felt the last of it bleed from him as she put into his hands a cup of dark sweetness which he knew perfectly well would turn out to be precisely drinking temperature. He understood how much she did for him. But he still felt that he should follow up the issue of their children's bedtime. I wish he wouldn't keep them up so late, he said, pitching his voice to signal his altered motivation. Well, she said, they can sleep in tomorrow morning, no school, and he does tell fairy tales so well, dear. That's not the fairy tales I mind, he said, faintly surprised to feel a little of his irritation returning. I just hope he's not filling their heads with all that other garbage. He sipped from his cup, which was indeed the right temperature. All those hairy old stories of his, about the good old days when men were men and women knew their place. He shook his head. Yes, he was losing his good humor again. Why do his stories bother you so? she asked gently. Honestly, they seem pretty harmless to me. I think all that old stuff depresses them. Nightmares and that sort of thing. Confuses them. Boring, too, the same old stuff over and over again. Mrs. Mom did not point out that their two children never had nightmares or permitted themselves to be bored. She made, in fact, no response at all, and after a sufficient pause, he shook his head and continued speaking, more hesitantly. I mean, there's something about it I can't... He glanced down at his cup, and perhaps he found there the words he wanted. He sipped them. Here it is. If the good old days were so good, then I and my generation were fools for allowing things to change. Then the world that we made is inferior, and I don't think it is. I mean, every generation of kids grows up convinced that their parents are idiots who buggered everything up, don't they? And I certainly don't want or need my father encouraging the kids to feel that way. He wiped his lip with the heel of his hand. I worked hard all my life to make this a better world than the one I was born into, and, and it is, Lou, it is. She took his face in her hands, kissed him, and bathed him in her very best smile. Of course it is, she lied. And that, Grandpa was saying just then, with the warm glow of the storyteller who knows he has wowed him again, is the story of how Princess Julie rescued the young blacksmith Jason from the Dark Tower, and together they slew the King of the Dolts. He bowed his head and began rolling his final cigarette of the night. The applause was, considering the size of the house, gratifying. That was really neat, Grandpa, Julie said enthusiastically, and little Jason clapped his hands and echoed, Really neat! No, tomorrow night, he said, and paused to lick his cigarette paper, I'll tell you what happened next. Oh, God, yes, Julie said, smacking her forehead. The slime monster, I forgot, he's still loose. The slime monster, Jason cried, but that's my favorite part. Grandpa, tell him now. 
Oh, yes, please, Grandpa, Julie seconded. In point of fact, she was not really all that crazy about the slime monster. He was pretty yucky. But now he represented that most precious commodity any child can know. A few minutes more of after bedtime awakeness. But the old man had been braced for this. Not a chance, Munchkins. Way past your bedtimes, and your folks'll— A chorus of protests rained about his head. Damn it, he said, in the tone that meant he was serious, and the storm chopped off short. He was mildly pleased by this small reflection of his authority, and he blinked, and when his eyes opened, Julie was holding out the candle to light his cigarette for him, and little Jason was inexpertly but enthusiastically trying to massage the right knee which he knew and occasionally remembered, gave Grandpa trouble a lot, because of something that Jason understood was called our fritas. How, the old man wondered mildly, do they manage an instant 180 without even shifting gears? You can tell us tomorrow, Grandpa, Julie assured him, with the massive nonchalance that only a six-year-old girl can lift. I don't matter about it. She put down the candle and got him an ashtray. Yeah, Jason picked up his cue. Who cares about a dumb old slime monster? He then attempted to look as if that last sentence were sincere and failed. Julie gave him a dirty look for overplaying his hand. Little con artists, Grandpa thought finally, there's hope for the race yet. He waited for the pitch, enjoying the knee massage. I'll make you a deal, Grandpa, Julie said. A deal? If I can ask you a question you can't answer, you have to tell about the olden days for ten minutes. He appeared to think about it while he smoked. Seven minutes. There was no timepiece in the room. Nine, Julie said at once. Eight. Eight and a half. Done. The old man did not expect to lose. He was expecting some kind of trick question, but he felt that he had heard most, perhaps all, of the classic conundrums over the course of his years, and he figured he could cobble up a trick answer to whatever Julie had up her sleeve. And she sideswiped him. You know that poem, Roses are Red, Violets are Blue? she asked. Which one? There are hundreds. That's what I mean, she said, springing the trap. I know a million of them. Roses are red, violets are blue. Out has a smelly, and so are you. Jason interrupted loudly and broke up. She glared at her younger brother and pursed her lips. Don't be such a child, she said gravely, and nearly caught Grandpa smiling. So that's my question. What? Why do they always say that? Oh, you mean roses are red, violets? When they're not. N not what? She looked up at the ceiling as though inviting God to bear witness to the impossibility of communicating with grown-ups. Blue, she said. The old man's jaw dropped. Violets are violet, she amplified. He was thunderstruck. She was absolutely right, and all at once he could not imagine why the question had not occurred to him decades earlier. I'll be damned. You win, princess. I have no idea how that one got started. You've got me dead to rights. Oh, boy, Jason crowed, releasing Grandpa's knee at once and returning to his bed. You kids nowadays, he prompted as Julie crawled in beside him. Grandpa accepted the inevitable. You kids nowadays don't know nothing about nothing, he said. Now, in the olden days... Grinning triumphantly, Julie fluffed up her pillow and stretched out on the pallet, pulling her blanket delicately up over her small legs just to the knees. Jason pulled his own blanket to his chin, uncaring that this bared his feet, and stared at the ceiling. In the olden days it wasn't like it is these days. Men were men in them days, and women knew their place in the world. This world has been going straight to hell since I was a boy, children, and you can dip me if it looks like getting any better. 
Things you kids take for granted nowadays, why, in the olden days we'd have laughed at the thought. Sometimes we did. For instance, this business of getting up at six in the goddamn morning and having a goddamn potato pancake for breakfast, and then walking twenty goddamn kilometers to the goddamn little red schoolhouse, in the old days there wasn't none of that crap. We got up at eight like civilized children, and walked twenty goddamn meters to where a bus come and hauled us the whole five clicks to a school the likes of which a child like you will never see, more's the pity. Tell about the bus, Jason ordered. Well, it was big enough for sixty kids to play in, and it was warm in the winter, sometimes too warm, and God himself drove it, and it smelled wonderful and just the same every day. And when it took you home after school, there was none of this nonsense of grabbing some refried beans and going off the whole rock and brush for the goddamn road crew for fifty cents a week, I'll tell you that. Why, if a feller had tried to hire me when I was your age, at a good salary, mind you, they'd have rocked him up for exploiting me. No, sir, we'd come home after a hard day of learning, and we'd play ball, or watch TV, or read a book, whatever we felt like. Ah, Christ, we lived like kings, and we never even knew it. You, Julie, you'll have children before you're sixteen, and a good wife and mother you'll be. But in the olden days, you might have been an executive, or a doctor, or a dancer. Jason, you'll grow up to be a good farmer, if they don't hang you. But if you'd been born when I was, you could have made movies in Thailand or flown airliners to Paris or picked rocks off the goddamn face of the moon and brought them home. And before any of that, you both could have had something you're never going to know, a mysterious, terrible, wonderful thing called adolescence. Now, by my generation and your fathers and mothers, we threw it all away because it wasn't perfect. The best I can explain it is they all voted themselves a free lunch, democratic as hell, and then tried to duck out when the check arrived. They spent every dime they had, and all your money besides, and they still had to wash some dishes. There was two packs of idiots, you see. On one side you had rich sons of bitches, excuse my language, and they were arrogant. Couldn't be bothered to build a nuclear power plant to specs or a car that work. Couldn't be bothered to hide their contempt. Why, did you know that banks actually used to set out for the use of their customers pens that didn't work and then chain them in place to prevent their theft? Worse than that, they were the dumbest aristocrats in the history of man. They couldn't be bothered to take care of their own peasants. I mean, if you want a horse to break his back for you, do you feed him or take all his hay to make yourself pillows and mattresses? And then on the other side, you had sincere, well-meaning folks who were even dumber than the rich. Between the anti-techers and the no-nukers and the stop-fusion jerks and the smallest beautiful types and the appropriate technology folks and the back-to-the-landers, they managed to pull the plug to throw away the whole goddamn solar system. The car might have got us all to a gas station running on fumes and momentum, but now that they shut the engine down, there isn't enough gas left to get it started again. The old man's cigarette was too short to keep smoking. He pinched it out between two fingers, salvaged the unburnt tobacco, and began to take up his tail again. Then he saw that the children were both fast asleep. He let his breath out, covered them, and blew out the candle. He thought about going downstairs to ask his son-in-law how things had gone in the fields, whether the crop had been saved. But the stairs were hard on the old man's arthritis and he really did not want to risk hearing bad news just now. Instead, he went to the window and watched the moon, lonely now for several decades, and after a time he cried, 
for the children, who could never, never hope that one day their grandchildren might have the stars. This story appears in the collection by any other name from Bain Books. Look for my podcast, Spider on the Web, at the iTunes Store or at my site, www.spiderrobinson.com. And again, don't forget, copyright is Mr. Spider Robinson's. And I hope you can kind of, you, you get what I'm on about with Spider's voice. It is just a biggest smorgasbord of comfort you've got out there in the podosphere. So Spider, thank you very much, sir. Next, we come on to The Main Fiction, and it is by a writer called Mr. Jeff Carlson. And I'll give you a little brief on Jeff. Jeff Carlson is the author of last summer's sci-fi thriller Plague Year and its new sequel, Plague War, which hits the shops on the 29th of July. His work has been translated into five languages. Plague Year has been also released on CD by Recorded Books and narrated by actor Richard Ferron. His short fiction has appeared in venues such as Asimov's and Writers of the Future. And he's in the up-and-coming Fast Forward 2 anthology. And I know Jeff's had a story played on Escape Pod as well. And we've also got another short story by Jeff, so look out for that too. If you're interested in Jeff's work, you can find free fiction, tour dates and more on Jeff's website, which is jverse.com, including a mind-boggling sci-fi trivia quiz. And do honestly pop over to the front of the website now because... Jeff Carlson, and I've I've seen a f- quite a few video promos for books, but Jeff's got one, and it's like a kind of this book trailer entitled Four Minutes Above 10,000 Feet, and it's actually shot in the Sierra Mountains, and it's a short film that can only be kind of described as really alive meets the Blair Witch Project meets Andromeda Strain, scary and fun. And Jeff kindly sent us a code, so I've got it embedded on the, the website. And go over and honestly check it out. It is just amazing, to be quite honest. Jeff, I'm rather jealous. So hopefully you'll enjoy this story. Again, drop emails. Let us know how you go, how it goes about, you know, if you liked it, if you didn't like it. Pop over to the forums and let it all out there, if you if you care to. <laughs> So, the Starship Sofa kindly presents The Frozen Sky by Jeff Carlson Narrated by Amy H. Sturgis 1. Vani ran with her eyes shut, chasing the sound of her own bootsteps. This channel in the rock was tight enough to reflect every noise back on itself, and she dodged through the open space between, weeping, crashing one shoulder against a slant in the wall. She fell. She glanced back, forgetting the danger in this simple reflex. The bloody wet glint in her retinas was only a distraction, a useless blur of heads-up data she couldn't read. Worse, her helmet was still transmitting sporadically, the side mount and some internals crushed beyond saving. She'd rigged an ELF pulse that obeyed on-off commands, but her sonar and the camera spot were dead to her, flickering at random, and the spotlight was like a torch in this cold. Vani clapped her glove over the gear block on her helmet, trying to muffle the beam. 
bootsteps were one thing. This entire moon groaned with seismic activity, rattling, cracking, but heat was the giveaway. Heat scarred the ice and rock, and for her to look back was to increase the odds of leaving a trail. Stupid. Stupid. Even now she didn't want to fight. They were beautiful in their way, the amphibians. Quick little starfish rippling with muscle, rippling with ideas. They had outmaneuvered her twice, and more than anything what she felt was regret. She could have done better. She should have waited instead of letting her ego make the decision. In some ways, Alexis Vonderak was still a girl at 36, single, too smart, too good with machines and math. She was successful. She was confident. She fit the ESA psych profile to six decimal points. Now, all that was gone. She was down to nerves and guesswork and whatever momentum she could hold on to. She lurched forward, groping with one hand along the soft volcanic rock. Her face struck a jagged outcropping in the wall, and then her hip, too, safe inside her armor. Vani didn't think they could track the alloys of her suit, but they seemed able to smell her footprints, fresh impacts in the ice and lava dust, and there was no question that they were highly attuned to warmth. She'd killed nine at the ravine, and covered her escape with an excavation charge, losing herself behind the storm. And they'd followed her easily. Could she use that somehow? Lead them into a trap? She was no soldier. She had never trained for violence, or even imagined it, except maybe at a few faculty budget meetings. An odd flicker of memory. Vani held tightly to it, clean and bright. She would have given anything to have that life again, those tiny problems, her tidy desk. She fell once more, off balance with her hand against her head. The suit protected her, though, and she scrabbled over what appeared to be a cave-in. Maybe here. Burn the rock, leave a false trail, then drop the rest of the broken wall on them. They'd give up. Didn't they have to give up? Nine dead at the ravine, two more in the ice. Could they really keep soaking up casualties like that? Vani could only guess at the amphibian's psychology. Even blind, she knew there was light. Alone, she knew someone would find her. Yet she thought the history of this race was without hope. Unrelenting strength, yes, but the idea of hope requires a sense of future. The idea of somewhere to go. They'd never imagined the stars, much less reached up to escape this black, fractured world. This damned world. No less than four Earth agencies had landed Mecca here to strip its resources, then sent a joint team in the name of science. And Lamb and Bowman were both dead before first contact, crushed in a rock swell. Would it have made any difference? The question was too big for her. That the amphibians existed at all was a shock. Humankind had long since found Mars and Venus forever barren, not just stillborn, but never started, and after more than a century and a half, the SETI radioscopes had yet to catch any hint of another thinking race within a hundred and fifty light-years. Some joke. All that time, the amphibians were inside the solar system. A neighbor. A counterpart. It should have been the luckiest miracle. It should have been like coming home. But that had been Vani's worst mistake, 
to think of them as similar in some way. They were an intelligence that seemed to lack fear or even hesitation. And that might be exactly why her trap would work. She decided to risk it. She was exhausted and hurt. And staying in one place would give her time to attempt repairs again, regain the advantage. She found a small shelf in the crumbling rock face above the slide and settled in to kill more of them. Two. Jupiter's sixth moon was an ocean, a deep, complete sphere too far from the sun to exist as a liquid, not at temperatures of negative 162 Celsius. Human beings first walked the ice in 2094, and flybys and probes had buzzed this distant white orb since 1979. Europa was an interesting place. For one thing, there was a unique oxygen atmosphere created by the slow dissociation of molecules from the surface. It was water ice. It was a natural fuel depot for fusion ships. Before the end of the 21st century, the investment of 50 mecha and two dozen more in spare parts was well worth an endless supply of deuterium at the edge of human civilization. The diggers and the processing stations were fusion-powered themselves, as were the tankers parked in orbit. Spacecraft came next, some crude, some robots, too. And eighteen years passed. It might have been longer, much longer. The Mecca were all on the equator, where it was easiest for the tankers to hold position above them without constantly burning fuel, fighting Jupiter's gravity and the tug of other moons. Eighteen years. But the glacial tides within the ice gave Europa a great many environments. Grinds, stacks, chasms, melts. And only the smooth so-called plains were deemed safe by the men and women who guided the Mecca by remote telepresence. Looking ahead, they sent rovers in all directions, surveying, sampling. At the southern pole was a smooth area, that covered nearly 40 kilometers. Many rovers went there. 3. Vani shivered, an intensely ugly sensation inside her suit. She'd locked the joints and torso, becoming a statue, preventing herself from causing any movement whatsoever. But inside it, she was still skin and muscle. The feel of her body against the shell was repulsive. Again and again, she caught herself squirming and tensing, trying to shrink away from it, trying the impossible. The rut in her thinking wasn't much better. She wished Cho Lan hadn't tried to... She wished somehow she'd saved them. Lan grasped so much, so fast, he might have already found a way out, a way up. She'd cobbled together a ghostling using his mim files, but she couldn't give it enough capacity to correct its flaws. She would have to shut down her ears or the override she'd programmed into her heat exchanger, each a different kind of death. Better to forget him. Erase him. But even at three-quarters logic, he was useful. He'd suggested a tranquilizer, and Vani popped one tab, slowed down enough to feel clear again. Clear and cold. She shouldn't be cold, sweating inside her hard shell, but the waiting was like its own labyrinth of ice. The waiting and the listening and the deep bruises in her face. 
She didn't care how sophisticated the medical systems were supposed to be. On some level, her body knew it was hurt, even numbed and shot full of don't worry. Her head had a dozen good reasons why she was safe, but her body knew the amphibians would come again. The lonely dark was alive. That truth no longer surprised her, and she strained her senses out into the thin, cold spaces reaching away from her, more afraid of missing the amphibians than of drawing in an attack. It was superstitious to imagine they could hear her thoughts. She knew that. But at the ravine, they'd run straight to her hiding place, despite three decoys. She had to learn if she was going to live. This rock shelf seemed defensible when she stumbled over it, nowhere to retreat but only one approach to cover, and there was a sponge work of holes overhead, for she could dump her waist heat before leaving. Vani was on her belly now, facing outward, trying to eat and trying to rest, trying to ignore the ugly, anesthetized pressure of the med beetles slithering in and out of her temple, her cheek, her eye socket. Both eyes were damaged, but she'd elected to deal with one at a time in case something went wrong, in case the nanotech needed to scavenge one to fix the other. Lamb's idea. He'd also agreed that her helmet would retain integrity if she broke off the gear block completely and stripped it for parts. What else would he have tried? The plastisteel of her suit should contain all sound, but there was another risk in talking, a risk she ignored, just to be with someone, even for a moment. Even a ghost. You still there? she whispered. Vaughn, listen, don't close me down again, please. Tell me what Lamb would do. Am I safe here? I need to rest. I laid down a false trail like you said. They'll catch us. But listen, did you check my map? I made it almost three clicks. They will. Eighty plus percent probability. But I can talk to them. We have enough data now. With temporary control of the suit, I could at least establish. No, Vani. Most of their language is shapes, postures. I can't tell you fast enough how to move. No, self scan and correct. Vaughn, wait. I said scan for glitches and correct. Off. Could a ghost be scary? Her fault. This one was her first, and she'd rushed the process. And she had been angry with him, the real him. So she let him remember how he died, and it made him erratic. Maybe he'd never doubted himself before. Bowman would have been a better friend. Bowman was older, calmer, another woman. But she was a geneticist, and Lamb's biology, ecology skills were too valuable. The choice had been obvious. Vani just didn't have the resources to pull them apart, build an overlay with Bowman's personality and Lamb's education. She waited alone. She itched her fingertips inside her rigid glove and did not know it. Too soon she prompted her clock again and was disappointed. Five minutes until her skull was repaired, thirty before she regained her optic nerve. Something was coming. Four. Europa's great ocean encased a solid rock core, and volcanic activity contributed to the chaos in the ice. Below many of the stack and melt environments, in fact, subsurface peaks of lava had proved common long bulges and spindles that could not have existed if this moon had more than a tenth of Earth's gravity. 
the tides distributed the rock everywhere, and it was a small problem for the Mecca. It damaged blades and claws. It jammed in pipes. Even dust would make a site unattractive, and ESA Rover 011 was quick to give up on a wide area of the southern plain when it brought up contaminants in its drill cylinder. Still, the rover was well-engineered. Belatedly, it noticed the consistency of shape among the debris. Then its telemetry jumped as it linked with a tanker overhead, using the ship's larger brain to analyze the smattering of solids. Finally, the rover moved again, sacrificing two forearms and a spine flexor to embrace its prize, insulating the sample against the near vacuum of the surface. Impossible as this seemed, given the preposterous cold and the depth from which the sample came, the contaminants were organic life-forms, long dead, long preserved, tiny albino bugs with no more nervous system than an earthworm. 5. Vani opened her blind eyes to nothing, and her ears were empty too, but she was sure something was coming. Inside the hard shell of her suit, she moved, but could not move, a surge of adrenaline that had no release. Trembling, she waited. Brooding, she cursed herself. But she'd spent a lifetime making order of things, and couldn't get her head quiet. She made everything familiar by worrying through it again and again. The trap She'd split her next-to-last excavation charge in two, placing one half in the ceiling just beyond her rock shelf, the other below and to her left. The blasts would shove forward and down, but there would be no shrapnel. In this gravity, there was always blowback, if only from ricochets. Good. The amphibians fought like a handful of rubber balls slammed down against the floor, spreading in an instant, always working to surround her. Without her eyes, that was even more of a problem. Her ELF pulse was far better at sounding out large shapes than a tracking movement, but it was all she had, so she'd smash everything within a hundred meters. Her armor could sustain indirect hits from the porous lava rock. She planned to bait them, bring them close, then roll into the crevice behind her and hit the explosives, clean up any survivors with her laser. It was a cutting tool, unfortunately, weak at the distance of a meter. Worse, if she overheated the gun, she would probably not be able to repair it. Her nanotech was limited to organic internals, and a good part of the toolkits on her chest and left hip had been torn away or lost. Stop thinking. Jesus, stop talking, she murmured, the words as quick as her heartbeat. Just stop it. Could they really hear her mind? They definitely had an extra sense, maybe the ability to feel weight, density. That would serve them well in the ice, so they would be able to separate her from the environment. For once, that was what she wanted. She reactivated the suit and rose into a crouch, strobing the fissure below with an ELF pulse. She thought her extra-low frequency signals were outside the amphibian's range of hearing, but either way, she'd committed herself just by standing. Nothing. There was... nothing. God! She choked back the sound and swept the long, bent spaces of the chasm repeatedly now, quickly locating pockets in the ceiling that she could not scour, not from this high angle. 
It was like turning on a light in what she thought was a closet, and finding instead that half the house was gone, and her enemy needed only the thinnest of openings. Were they already too close? She'd seen it before, a dozen amphibians upside down on the rock like fat, creeping mussels. She held up her laser even as she groped with her other hand for a chunk of rock. There was gravel, too, and a good boulder, everything she'd been able to gather. Throw it now? Try to provoke them? Her thumb gritted in the jagged lava as she clenched down on it. Vani was a decent shot with a ball. She grew up with three brothers. But the suit itself was a weapon. The suit had voice programs that made her something like a passenger inside a robot, auto-commands designed for activities like climbing or welding. Humans got tired. The suit did not. Even better, it still had use of the radar targeting that she could not see, and it would limit the velocity of its throws only to avoid damaging her shoulder and back. She didn't trust it. She'd had to use that low-level AI as a base imprint for her ghost. Another mistake. The programming was rotten with Lamb's MIM files, and twice now the ghost had caused interrupts, trying to clean and reconfigure itself, trying to find control. And yet, Vani was afraid to purge it. She might lose the suit's amplified speed and strength at the same time. "'You still there?' she hissed. "'Von, listen, don't close me down again, please.' The same thing it always said. God, oh God, no time to argue. Combat menu, she told it. Online. But she hesitated. Right now the ghost was still somewhat contained. That would change as soon as she gave it access to defense modes. A bad gamble. The extra capacity might be exactly what the ghost needed to self-correct. Or the stupid damned thing might corrupt the most basic functions of her suit. Was there any other way? I need auto-targeting only, she said. Fire by voice command. Vaughn, that drops efficiency to 30%. Fire by voice command. Confirm. Listen to me. Four slender arms reached out of the ceiling. Six. It was easy to be friends with Cho Lam. He was freak smart, but also patient hiding himself in a quiet voice, both eager and shy at the same time. He probably didn't realize he had restless eyes, because in every other way he moved just like he talked, gently. Vani's impression was of a man who'd spent his life holding back, a man who wanted to belong. He made his break with that kind of thinking before the boards had even agreed how many people to send. Even before the mining groups had reprogrammed their mecha for new, more intensive searches, Lam let all of his intelligence show and posted a sim that guaranteed his place on the mission. For bugs. Just simple, stupid bugs. That was all that had been found, and no one believed this ice ball could support much else. And there were 15,000 volunteers in the first week. 15,000! even knowing that the trip out would be two and a half months cramped up inside a HAB module, that the food would be slop in a bag, that Jupiter seethed with radiation. Vani still had to smile looking back on it. So much heart and curiosity. So much of the monkey in them still. Fifteen thousand people suddenly didn't care about anything but getting their feet on Europa and grubbing around for exotic life. It was a riddle, 
unlike anything else. Where did the bugs come from? These weak little creatures were not burrowers, not with that spherical body shape, not with those dorsal whiskers. And there were variations in the ice. The narrow layer that had the bugs in it was a lot younger than the rest of the sample, and loaded with chlorides and minerals. Lamb's school of thought predicted a world inside the ice, a small, uneasy, vertical world. They had long known that Europa's great ocean was not wholly solid. The freeze went down as much as ten kilometers, but beneath that was slush, and eventually liquid, as hot as boiling, where raw magma or gas pushed out of the moon's rocky core. It had all the building blocks of life, heat, water, organic material from comet and meteor strikes, but this moon was not so gentle a place as Earth. For over a hundred years, a hundred probes had found nothing. No surprise. Lamb confined his model to a mere six kilometers, where a fin of subsurface mountains partly diverted the force of the tides. Yet even in this safe zone, the ice and rock were burned and torn. Lamb was among the first to understand the violence of this environment, and it fascinated him. Here are the bugs in an open rift, he said. What are they doing? We don't know. Mating? Migrating? Nearby there is a rumble, and a superheated geyser floods the rift. It collapses, then slowly freezes. But there are more pocket ecologies stacked all through this area, some with thin atmospheres of water vapor from the ice or volcanic gases such as nitrogen and carbon dioxide, poisonous hydrogen chloride, explosive hydrogen sulfide. Eons ago, in some of these holes, in warm water, Single-cell organisms had grown and thrived. Much later, there was algae, and then vegetation to break down the CO2, releasing free oxygen into at least some of the pocket ecologies, at least for a time. Life here flourished because it must, evolving and spreading, never more than a few steps ahead of constant upheaval. Seven. Vani's head sang with the low buzz of their sonar, too strong to be just one. They were all around. A hint of arms, the clack of a falling pebble. She stepped back without intending to, thinking only with her nerves. And in response, the amphibians' voices rose up like a flood, wild and thick. Her emotions were a different storm, but there was one clear idea at the center of it. She didn't want to die badly. More than that, she didn't want the wrong reasons to be her last. Then the voice said, "Vaughn, listen. I have six to eight targets, but they're all concealed. Nine targets now. If we're going to pick them off before they jump, I need full system access." But they hadn't jumped, not yet. For the first time, the amphibians were being cautious, curious. Maybe it was an overture. Vani moved forward again to the edge of the cliff and made herself small, tucking both arms into her chest. What are you doing? The posture was submissive, but at the same time she tried to project resolve and strength, keeping her head up, keeping it turning from side to side. They understood at least that much of the way she was built. They'd come after her face every time. Vaughn, listen. It's the only chance. No," she whispered, making her decision. "Off, wait," I said. "Off." She couldn't hate the stupid thing. She was to blame for everything that was wrong with him, 
and he was just a ghost anyway. And it had been his idea to try to talk without words. A great idea. It was incredibly dangerous, but at the same time, it held every bit of hope. The amphibian sang and sang and sang, measuring her, crowding her. Would they show themselves without attacking? 8. Christmas Bowman was 52 and not so new to success or failure, and that was partly why she won her slot on the expedition, as a balance to Lamb and Vonderack. Vonnie had liked her, too. Bowman pretended sarcasm with them, but it was only a way of communicating her experience. You could measure her amusement in each fraction of a centimeter that her brows lifted above her muddy green eyes. She had her own fascination. What if, she kept saying, what if those bugs weren't dead at all, but hibernating, or otherwise still biologically active? What if their chemistry wasn't too strange to co-opt and could be used in geriatrics or cryosurgery? Yes, they appeared to have been boiled in magma-heated water and then gradually mashed and distorted by the freezing process. They appeared very dead indeed, but who could say what traits were normal here? It wasn't impossible that the bugs had evolved to spread in this manner, like spores, preserved for ages until the ice opened up again. Until a gene smith landed on Europa, there was no way to know and Bowman committed to a year's hardship on nothing more than spectral scans and what-if. They made a game of it inside the thin, weightless cage of their ship. What if I trade you my dessert tonight for some of your computer time? And what if you turn off that friggin' music? Eleven weeks in a box. There wouldn't have been room for them to start bouncing off the walls, and Christmas Bowman emerged naturally as their leader, a little bit of a mom, a little bit of a flirt. She kept the pressure low with her jokes and also made sure they paid attention to each other because the temptation was to only look ahead. Lamb constantly updated his sims as the mecha sent new data and Vonnie had full responsibility for ship systems and maintenance and all of them reviewed and participated in various conferences and boards and debates. Eleven weeks. It could have been long enough to learn to hate each other or even little enough to still be strangers when they arrived. But Bowman set aside much of her own work to invest in her colleagues instead. The hieroglyphs changed everything. It was a Chinese rover this time, running close to the ESA find. Its transmission was both encoded and altercast, but the Europeans and the Brazilians each caught enough of the signal to have something to work with. In less than four hours, the naked code went system-wide. Vani had learned politics at Stuttgart, and later, consulting for Aryan space. Information was power. There didn't seem to be much sense in withholding the discovery. Likely it was just reflex, but the mood back on Earth took a hit. Their radio surged with new worries and protocols, and they were still two and a half weeks from Europa. It could have ruined them. It would have sunk all of their energy into the worst kind of distraction. Bowman saw them through. "'What if he is a dastardly chink spy?' she said, straight-faced. Vonnie blushed at the slur, but Lamb laughed out loud. They were friends enough to understand that they were on their own, no matter what played out back home. The video was in radar and infrared, 
the Mecca's low-slung perspective trundling forward with gradients of temperature laid over the green imagery. Far left, irregular lumps masked the horizon, warm gas oozing from several vents. The Mecca turned closer, and the perspective fell sideways. In front of the camera, six meters of ice bulged like a muscle. Gas spewed upward, pelting hail. Then it stopped, and the Mecca extended a wire probe down into the quiet, confirming a glimpse of repetitive shapes in the ice. In radar, the carvings were stark, perfect, inarguable. What if we just killed somebody when the air went out? Bonnie asked, thinking like an engineer. But Bowman said, No, it's old and isolated. She's right, Lamb agreed. They had grouped around the best monitor, and Bonnie smiled, glad for their excitement. Then she saw his face and frowned, feeling one step behind. Look, he said, as he ducked his own eyes in disappointment. Very old, Bowman said. Still... The hieroglyphs repeated one shape over and over in eight vertical columns of four apiece, a symbol much like an eight-pointed star with every arm knuckled and bent. From tip to tip, each carving was more than a meter wide and set deep enough into the ice to be nearly half a meter thick through the middle, small domes with tapered limbs. Vani thought it could be a sun calendar. She started to say so, then caught herself— This far out, the sun was barely brighter than any other star, and she'd soaked up enough from Lamb to believe that there had never been anything walking around on the surface of this moon. Too old, Lamb said. Look at the drift. The three rightmost columns appeared sloppy, hurried, but that was only because the ice had swelled there, distorting the symbols. And in this safe zone, surface tides could be measured in millimeters per century. Vani felt a weird shiver down her spine. These symbols might be several times older than the dim, half-forgotten histories recorded in the Bible. Cheer up, Bowman said, running her finger across the scroll pad. The first theories from Earth were a mating ground, a food cache. Maybe only territorial markings, but consensus was that the site demonstrated at least chimpanzee-equivalent intelligence. Even if they've all been dead for a thousand years, I guarantee you'll be up for the Nobel and the cover of every magazine you can think of. What? He's not that smart, Vani said, trying for a laugh. But Lamb just grimaced and shook his head. Nine. The first one came from behind, undetected, almost certainly airborne. It clamped its eight arms around her helmet, and the fissure exploded with bodies. Vani screamed, uselessly. Thrashing was no better. The roping muscles cinched down on her face were lined with cilia, fine, gripping pinchers in the thousands, and the amphibian had landed its body against the rough patch where her gear block had been, chewing there with its beak. The sound was a high squeal, rubbing and scraping. She flailed at it with both hands. Somehow she managed another sweep of the chasm at the same time. The echoes of her ELF pulse were close and frantic, overlapping. A swarm. She'd seen it before. The amphibians were spectacular in flight, all arms outstretched like suns. 
Their hieroglyphs were a literal portrayal of their bodies. To a species that saw in sonar, language consisted of stance and gesture. They always knew each other's mood and seemed to share it like a school of fish. At a guess, there were twenty in the tightly choreographed launch, and too many had gotten past her explosives. You still there? she shouted. Vaughn, listen, don't close me down again, please. She was already talking over the ghost. Auto assault, max force, lamb, combat menu, AP, auto assault, do you understand? The delay felt like another kind of blindness and separation. She almost froze. She screamed again. She punched at the small monster wrapping around her head, but its hard cartilage skin was like pounding on rubber. Only her cutting tool had pierced that hide before, and she was afraid to use the laser against her own face. Then she jerked sideways, wrenching her spine. At first she thought she'd been hit by a mass of bodies. Auto assault. The suit carried her. The suit spasmed and leapt. It put her fist to her temple and drew the laser across the amphibian's arms, a precise stutter of four burns, even as it threw her onto her hip and met the incoming wave with a kick. Impacts shook Vonnie's foot and shin, and then she was up again. Then three tentacles clunked against her back. Some of the amphibians must have gone overhead when she dropped. They must have completely surrounded her. and the suit spun and surged into the rock, scraping itself clean. So fast. She lost all sense of up and down. She lost herself. Whatever triumph she'd felt in that first instant gave way to blunt, claustrophobic terror. The suit did not use its shape like a human would, pinning one monster with its face, and again and again it hurled itself into the rock. It wasn't squeamish, either. It did not flinch at the wretched shrilling of an amphibian caught between its hands, or even turn from the burst of entrails. In normal gravity, against larger enemies, Vonnie would have been seriously injured. Even here she was shaken so badly she didn't immediately realize it was over. Or remember when she'd regained her right eye. Surprise and hope lifted her in that moment of clarity. I can... Lamb? The suit stood at the top of the landslide beneath her small, broken shelf, just short of the explosive charges. Her visor glowed with heat signatures, but the only living shapes were fading, retreating deep into the fissure. Eleven more small bodies drifted in the minimal gravity or lay impaled against the rough black lava. The air was fogged with blood. Mute, she tried to turn away. Crying out, she knew she was paralyzed. Lamb? Lamb, it's over. Offline. Lamb, offline. If they attacked again, if the ghost had corrupted all suit functions, her body choked with that heavy new fear again, and she fought without thinking inside her shell. He spoke in a hush. I have an additional threat. Let me go! Vaughn, quiet. Something's coming. What? There were new sonar voices right before the amphibians broke away. Something that scared them off. His voice was different, cooler, more confident. Had he finally written out his glitches? 
with access to so many more systems, he could have duped himself and then cut away the flaws in a microsecond. Vani was overdue for a little luck. Is it one of our probes? No. New life forms, also in a pack. Of course. Food here was scarce. Any commotion would draw every predator within hearing, and she shouldn't have expected anything else. Still, the disappointment in her felt like a new, raw wound. Do you want to stay and fight? I estimate them at two hundred meters. Vani cursed bitterly, hating this dark place, hating her own seesaw of emotions. She felt like apologizing, even though he was just a goddamn program. She felt grateful. Run for it, she said. All these bodies, that's a big meal. We should be able to get a good head start. Ten. She landed their slow boat on Europa more than a week before the new high G launches would arrive. But they were ordered to wait. The two larger ships now en route carried a good many of the experts who'd lost out the first time, and not a small number of bureaucrats. And there was real truth to the idea that this crowd would be better able to process the site. Still, Lamb smoldered. You see what's happening, he said, his back to the HAB module window, as if testing himself. Vani couldn't leave the bubble alone, and Bowman made her wipe off her fingerprints every night. The ice was fantastic. I know it's tough, she said, barely glancing at him. You're already talking like them. Hey, easy, I'm on your side. You think I'm mad because they might grab some of the glory, because I had to put up with living in a closet with two beautiful women for eleven weeks? She turned at beautiful, a little wary. So far he'd been scrupulous about keeping his distance. Vaughn, you've seen their org chart, he said. Who do you think's in charge, the people like you and me? His brown eyes searched her face, then shifted to gaze at the window behind her. It's being politicized, he said. The fuel, the water. You have to listen to what they're really saying. The ice. Everyone was still digging along the equator, and even now a CSA robot ship was carefully unfolding in orbit, dropping new Mecca. Miners. They had been funded years ago and had been in transit for months, and that kind of inertia was fundamental to nearly every aspect of modern civilization. The ice. It held barely more than a hundredth of a percent deuterium, but that precious gas could be compressed and boxed and easily lobbed up out of Europa's weak gravity. The tankers filled faster than they could be built. Escaping Jupiter wasn't expensive either. Diving close and then slinging away, and the old god was perfectly positioned to feed the inner planets. More and more surface catapults had been hurling packets equipped with nothing more than a radio beacon into slow sunward trajectories. And if they didn't arrive for years, even if one or two went missing along the way, no problem. They were lined up like endless supply trains and as cheap as dirt. The ice. Deuterium fusion reactors kept people alive on Luna and Mars and on a hundred rocks in the asteroid belt and everywhere in between. And water oxygen futures had become more than stiff enough to make tearing up the ice itself worthwhile. The solar system was in bloom. The Chinese had expanded with total commitment, and other cultures were growing as fast as they could just to keep from being left behind. 
They've already given up on most of this world, Lamb said, still angry over dinner. It's too easy. They've been ripping it apart for twenty years with every reason to keep at it, right? I even helped them. Look, they're all posting my sim like it's proof, like this safe zone is definitely the only one. Okay, Bowman said. Okay. We all know Sekjin Kokubo is going to ride the expedition like a 900 pound gorilla. The Japanese minister was space born and represented 6,000 colonists who made up a crucial part of the Earth orbit economy. What do you want to do about it? We've got a little time, he said, long enough to post enough info that they can't bury it. You know what I mean. Delays for more surveys, delays for safety, maybe send in a few crawlers, five or six months goes by, downplay the whole thing. What do you want to do, Lamb? I want to go in. 11. All she wanted was out. But in fifty meters they changed direction seven times through the black, ragged rock, dodging through gaps and pockets, jumping one crack and then two loose slumping hills of debris. Vani had to grit her teeth. Letting the suit run in this gravity felt too much like fighting. Grab, kick, kick again, swimming off the walls and ceilings. It felt too much like they were going in a circle. The ghost followed every possible way up. But again and again they lost as much elevation as they'd gained, ducking and weaving for open space. They couldn't even maintain a lateral bearing, forced left, and then left, and then left again. Go back! Lamb, go back to that last branch! Radar suggests another upward trend ahead of us. You. She was almost unable to say it. Aren't you headed right where we came from? We've paralleled several caverns, yes. Christ! She'd pulled the explosive charges before they left, so it would be easy to blow the channel behind them, shut off any pursuit. But what if they ran into yet another threat? What if this tunnel was ultimately a dead end? These catacombs had formed millennia ago, when liquid water cut through the rock in a mix of geysers, rivers, and slow draining seas. Since then, Quakes and fractures had opened new holes and closed others, and the ice was always there, dripping or pushing or smashing its way in. Between radar sims and actual footsteps covered, her maps went eighteen kilometers, although most of that was tangled into a pyramid just four kilometers on a side, and long sections of her trail had gone unrecorded or were literally non existent now, destroyed in the rock swell. It was unlikely she could retrace her steps, even if she wanted to, even knowing that something was behind her. What was coming? Can you tell me? They were a little bigger than amphibians, louder. By my estimate, there were only six or seven, but the amphibians retreated as soon as they heard the other sonar. Vani measured a broad slab of rock as they approached, using her own gut hunch as well as radar analysis. It looked like a good place to drop the roof. All she wanted was out. No more data, no more diplomacy, no more trying to vindicate her friend's deaths. No more guilt. Is there any way to know if they're ahead of us? I've continued to see traces of prints and spore. Look there, and there. Across her visor, the ghost highlighted 
two faint smears of feces close together on a small, level spot on the tunnel floor. Neither was much more than a few frozen molecules. In this place, nothing went to waste or was left behind. Somehow, that made her feel badly. Again. Somehow, the dung is probably not amphibian. We'd have to stop and test samples. But in retrospect, there's a good probability that the amphibians chased us beyond their own territory and were already deep into the home of the other life form. Fanny just shook her head. Even with her weapons and size, she hadn't been able to make the amphibians run away. Whatever these new creatures were, maybe she'd been luckier so far than she thought. Twelve. It was the kind of career move you only made once. They would either be heroes or subject to a great many lawsuits, probably jail time in Lamb's case. Vani suspected he was already thinking of political asylum. The hieroglyphs meant that much to him, more than home, more than family, and for all the right reasons. He wanted to range as deep as possible. He wanted proof of the diversity of life implied by the carvings, the complex food chain that must support the carvers. There would be little or no fossil record here, of course. At best, the tides would hold a churned-up mishmash of species carried far from their time and habitats. But that was the point. Diaspora. There must be priceless information everywhere across this moon. There must be life in other places. The mining would never stop. He accepted that. But it could be heavily restricted. It could be more careful. Bowman only argued for a day. She was too much like them, or she wouldn't have been there in the first place. And the men on the radio talked like slaps in the face, hard and quick, controlling. She didn't appreciate that. She had Lamb concoct a sim that showed the hieroglyphs in danger, which wasn't untruthful. The Mecca had resealed the hole, but the hieroglyphs were still reacting to near vacuum. And who could say what data was being lost as the ice slowly boiled away? They were given permission to enter the trench, only the trench, and Lamb laughed and ran for his armor. Game over, he said. Game over. I mean, once we're inside, there'll be all kinds of reasons we have to keep poking around, right? Wait. Fanny said, and hugged them both, Bowman first, blushing a little as she turned to Lamb. You can't feel anything in a scout suit, she explained. Yeah, he smiled, looking for her eyes. They dropped in through a small cut in the roof and instructed the Mecca to close it again, Lamb and Bowman already bickering contentedly. He wanted radar and x-ray. She insisted on passive microscopy. Vonnie just grinned and flipped through a heads-up of the preliminary soundings taken by wire probe. Their visors were modifying sonar feedback into hollow imagery to avoid burning the ice with light. It was densely, overwhelmingly textured. An irregular quilt of dewdrops, smooth spots, swells, and depressions. Only the hieroglyphs held a pattern. She seemed to be standing at the end of a tunnel, which made the symbols even more intriguing. Why invest such effort, marking the walls of what must be a low-traffic area? Could this be some sort of holy place? Lamb would say that was just more anthropomorphism, 
and it wasn't impossible that at one time the tunnel had continued on from here until the tides collapsed it. But what had the carvers been doing so close to the surface? You'll never pack up the whole wall and put it in a museum, Lamb said. We're damaging it just by standing here. All the more reason to be careful. Bowman shook her head, the big gear block on one side like a misplaced hat. We don't know how finely detailed the top layer exactly, so we get it all in one burst, full spectrum. The heat, specialist lamb. The other ships were still more than two light minutes away, which could reduce conversation to a series of interruptions. We'd like to see the first column again. Please stand by for auto control. Roger that, Lamb answered, on the coded frequency, and in a moment his suit carefully adjusted his upper body, aiming the gear block with machine precision. It was a little spooky. The suits weren't supposed to accept remote programs without an okay from whoever was inside, but Vani wondered. When they started deeper into the tunnel, would their suits lock up? When they tried to send their data on public channels, would the broadcast come out clean or garbled? Lamb had switched back to suit radio. There's something embedded in the ice. What? Their computers must have seen it in our telemetry. Pellets. Everywhere. Probably organic. Look. The tiny spheres were as translucent as the ice itself. Eggs? Food? What if... Vani tried to get a word in edgewise, but Bowman was beside herself, rattling her gloves against her thighs as if to grab and hold the little things. We can't pull them out, not yet, Bowman said. We'll have to record and map it first, so I guess your full-spectrum burst is the best way to go, Lamb. What do you think? I think you're right, he said generously. Can we get a wire in? Get a sample? Vani pointed. What if we pick through the debris against that wall? The fourth column was the most deteriorated, and among the confusion of arms were several that had crumbled. Genius! Bowman clapped her on the back, a dull clank. Seconds later they had their sample, and Lamb and Bowman bent over it together like cavemen protecting a spark, bumping their thick shoulders, both of them chattering into the radio at the same time. They might have stayed all day. They might have stayed until the other ships arrived, happily absorbed in chem tests and new theories. It was Vani who convinced them to move on. 13. The left knee gave out in mid-bounce, and she pinwheeled sideways, bashing against the rock. In an instant, Vani hit the opposite side of the gap. But the ghost was quick to compensate. Her right heel and then one hand touched lightly, and the ghost had already corrected their spin, regaining speed, clawing forward through the maze. Lamb, she said, heart pounding. You're all right. There's no breach. Christ, she hadn't even thought of decompressing and tensed at the idea, hurting her neck when the ghost bent to fix a hole. For twenty minutes they'd been fighting through a series of cave-ins and grinds, and now the suit spidered forward with the bad leg trailing awkwardly, protecting it. How long for repairs? she asked. That may not be possible. Every anterior cable in the knee snapped, and one medial. They were falling apart. The suit had never been designed to take this kind of abuse, and Vani wasn't doing much better, punch drunk on stress and stimulants and more than thirty hours on the run, nearly fifty since she'd really slept. 
she didn't want to make the wrong decision. How long, Lamb? Without the toolkit, our best option might be to scavenge material from the ankle, weld it solid, and restore some function to the knee. I estimate that would take an hour. No. If they stopped, she was afraid she'd close her eyes. It would only be smart to rest, but it would be too much like being blind again. No, keep going, she said. If his sims were correct, they were still at least two kilometers down, and at some point they'd have to transition from rock to ice. This mountain rose up like a fin, always narrowing, disappearing completely a kilometer and a half from the surface. There would be islands suspended in the ice, broken off hunks as large as New York, and gravel fields like sheets and clouds. The trick would be to find a gas vent that went all the way up. The trick would be to climb through without touching off a rock swell. Vani clenched her teeth, trying to avoid the thought. She knew that too much planning would overwhelm her. They ducked another gap, and suddenly the rift opened into a huge volcanic bubble open on one side. It was half full of ice, but just to look across three hundred meters of open room was disorienting. Vani felt the same uncertainty in Lamb. The ghost hesitated, scanning up and back. What do you think? she said. There's definitely some new melt over there. If we dig, we might get into a vent, get out of this rock, close the hole behind us. He lit her visor with radar frames. Look. Oh. Vani surprised herself. Her fear twisted in her like a saw, but even now, after everything, she also felt a strong, clear surge of excitement. There were more hieroglyphs across the cavern, a long wall of symbols cut into the rock itself. It was easily twenty times larger than the site they'd found at the surface, and she only wrestled with herself for an instant. How fast can you get a recording? she said. Fourteen. The pellets in the ice were more than Bowman and Lamb had hoped for, and swept away any last hint of doubt. This was a sentient race, or had been long ago, because each little ball looked to be feces mixed with other biologics like saliva or blood, swamped in chemicals, hormones. Vani could only admire the elegance of it. In this resource limited environment, the carvers had found at least two ways to encode information. When she started down the tunnel, it was with the thrill of history. She would always be first to walk inside this moon, and a slave cast kept a swirl of tiny mecca around her feet, sounding the ice, recording everything. Unfortunately, she wasn't so graceful. The passage dropped steeply, but she tended to crash into the ceiling, misjudging the gravity. Worse, the opening shrank until it wasn't much bigger than her suit, and twice became too narrow for Vani to continue on without roughly shouldering through the brittle walls. Their telemetry betrayed them, as expected. The men on the radio questioned her movement and ordered her back. She kept going. Sonar showed an end to the tunnel after four hundred meters, yet infrared revealed that it was a shade warmer than its surroundings, with a hot pinprick of gas leaking through. Vani preempted any debate. There's something behind here, she said. My sonar's going crazy. Something alive? That was Lamb. I don't know, but this is an airlock. Look at it. 
so smooth. It was definitely not a formation caused by slow melt or tidal pressures. Amazing. Vani would have cringed at the idea of placing such responsibility in anything as flimsy as ice. But there were no metals here. What else could the carvers use? It spoke again of their inventiveness and determination, and she couldn't wait to see more. It was a test of sorts, a chance to prove herself the way that Lamb and Bowman had already done. Every step deeper, every challenge met, showed her worth to the team. To get through without losing the air, she would need to trap herself between this block and a new seal of her own making, and every surface in the ice showed old scars and stubs. Irregular holes marred the walls where building material must have been dug out. I say go, Lamb said to the men on the radio. We're picking up some kind of reading. Noise, heat, there's no telling what we'll miss if we just sit here. I can get us in, Vani agreed. Her friends had less than two hours to live when they joined her near the airlock, grinning like kids. Bowman was last in line, so Vani took control of Bowman's suit, dropping frozen blocks into place and soldering the stack together with her laser finger on a minimum setting. Slow work, she said, apologizing, not wanting to blunt their energy. Lamb only shrugged, running Sims on his visor as he waited. Think what they used, he said. Body heat? Urine, maybe. There are organic contaminants all through here. Some good DNA, Bowman agreed, restless and happy. Finally, they were sealed in, and Vani eased through the original lock. Immediately, she saw another ice plug further on. That was good engineering, but she was disappointed to realize how many lifetimes it must have been since the carvers had come here or even considered this tunnel important. Long, long ago, The top of the second lock had slumped open, and her suit analyzed the low-pressure atmosphere bleeding over her as nearly 100% nitrogen, a gas so inert no creature could have evolved to burn it as an energy source. This seemed to be a dead place. Why bother to block it off? Nobody home, she said. No. Lamb was cheerful, even buoyant, bumping her shoulder as he tried to look past. But maybe the air here was bad, because this place was unused, she thought. Maybe they controlled oxygen content with floodgates. It could be their most precious resource. Lamb and Bowman were beyond listening, though, lost in the invisible chatter of data. Some of their tiny mecha had run ahead, while others lingered to taste the ice, and Lamb especially was in his element, pulling files, fitting each little perspective into a working hole. Vani was eager, too, yet meticulously rebuilt the locks behind them. Then she moved in front again, her exhilaration like a shout. Another eighty meters on, though, the slanting tunnel dropped away, completely. A sink. It was encrusted with old melt, and across the way was a hollow of uncertain depth, thick with stalactites. There had been a catastrophe here, a belch of heat, probably. But she couldn't feel sad. She walked to the edge. Her sonar raced down the gaping channel like a fantastic halo, but did not reach bottom. Somewhere down there was the dark heart of this world. Perfect, Lamb said, uploading a sim to her to complete the thought. This shaft was a cross-section through the ice, 
Maybe rich, maybe not. A Mecca descending. Sure, give me fifteen minutes. It would be easy to sink a few bolts, play out a molecular wire, and send a bot down like a spider. Vani rifled through her kit. Huh, he said then, and one of the Mecca near Vani's feet reared back and shot a marker into the ice. It was dirty ice, like most of the patches that Lamb had already targeted. Some dark with lava dust, others discolored like milk or glass. There was a shell, a small spiral shell. It wouldn't have looked unusual on any beach on Earth, but here it was—a treasure. Even so, Lamb was careful. He merely stuck a radio pin into the wall of the tunnel. The wall exploded. White ice, black rock. Vani was nearly in front of it, and that saved her. The blast knocked her out and up, snarled in her wire. Bowman yelled once, "Lamb, get back!" There was probably no more than a quarter ton of debris stopped up behind the dust pack, a mass of gravel and larger stones that had gradually absorbed just enough warmth to slump forward into a loose, dangerous bulge, and it weighed only a tenth as much as it would have on Earth. But in this gravity, it splashed, and it still had all of its inertia and mass. It tore the vent. It hit other nodes of rock. There were three upward shock waves: the first ricochets, a vicious swell, and then a smaller settling riffle. Vani escaped the worst of it, half conscious and confused. Her body slammed into the safe pockets at the top of the vent as her friends disappeared. Their share casts. Bursting with alarms, and then one massive injury report before cutting off. But she was still tied to the wire, and it would not break. One end caught in the heaving ice, and the swell took her too. Fifteen, Vani lurched sideways across the cavern and pushed against another slab of rock. The torn fragments of the wall had shifted as water and ice intruded, retreated, came again, and some wild feeling in her was able to guess which pieces were only debris and which held hieroglyphs on one side or another. It made the hair stand up on her arms and neck, uneven and mute. It felt exactly like, wait, sonar. Somehow she'd sensed it first. Even before his machine ears, but there was no time to wonder at the weird, creeping changes in herself. How close are they? We're almost done. At least a thousand meters. It's only echoes. My estimate could be off, but I'd say they're still deep in the tunnels. Possibly they don't even know we're here. No, they know. Their voices aren't directed this way. Let's move. Can you pull up that block over there? I think it came out of that corner. If we can scan whatever's left on it, we'll have most of this end of the wall. The suit limped forward. Vani wondered how it would hold up in a fight, and knew she didn't want to be out in the open like this. Better to find a hole, place the explosives. It's not amphibians, is it? No, the others. She shoved at the rock, moving feverishly now. But it felt good and right to stay, to have purpose again. She would kill as many as she had to, but she was not just a rat in a trap, running mindlessly. She had worn down to the bedrock of herself and found what she needed—a last reservoir of strength. 
only a few shards left now, possibly the beginning of an answer. Lamb said he'd seen enough of the amphibian's language to try to communicate, but this stretch of carvings was too valuable to abandon. A sample this large would be priceless in translation efforts, and even if she survived, they might never find their way back to this cave. And if she died... Well, if she died, their probes might still find her. Her suit would transmit her files, even if she was buried and lost. Vani realized she was crying, and wasn't angry. She wasn't ashamed. She had done her best all the way through, and maybe that was enough. That was good and right. She dropped the rock and pushed over a smaller boulder with only a chipped half-moon of a carving on the underside. Got it? she asked, feeling close to him again, the real him and the ghost. He was a powerful friend. Three hundred meters, Vaughn. We should go. You got it, she repeated. Yes, Vaughn, listen. There are more of them this time, at least ten, moving fast now. Help me with this last big one. The truth was that nobody even really knew what questions to ask. She didn't wonder why there were amphibian hieroglyphs in what was obviously no longer their territory. The catacombs probably changed hands regularly or were deserted and reclaimed. But why she hadn't seen more? These carvings were ancient. Were the amphibians only coming back now after a long absence? Even then, why hadn't she seen more signs of activity? Maybe some part of the secret was here, and she was willing to fight for it. Something else, she realized. The answer might be in their enemies, and Vani swung to face the approaching voices with an excavation charge in either hand. 16. The first little world in the ice would always be her favorite. It was peaceful. The two species of bugs, closely related to each other but wholly unlike the fat-bodied ants brought up by the ESA rover, seemed to feed solely on the gray, sticky algae that grew alongside the wells of the hot springs, where the melt was thick and ever-changing. At one time this chamber must have been part of a larger area, but ice falls had long since walled it off. Vani only stumbled into this open space when she refused to be deterred and started digging. Her mind had felt very, very small in those hours— too small for any thought except to get away from the lethal, creaking weight of the collapsed vent above her. She wasn't hurt other than a sprained elbow. She was alone. Communication with the outside had already been staticky, despite the relays she'd left along the tunnel. Maybe those machines were all gone. Maybe she'd fallen further than she thought. Obviously she had to find a way back to the surface. The other ships were still two days out, and it might take them another day to gear up and scout for her, even longer to forge their way through the crumbling mass above. She regretted not having monitors to leave in this place. Bowman, especially, would have been excited, but nearly all of Vani's mecca had been lost in the Rockswell. The two she had left she sent exploring, and then sat still, grieving, resting, and recording, her camera lights were dazzling in the wet ice. The atmosphere here was oxygen-rich, though still nothing that would support a human being, laced with hydrogen chloride. More interesting, the pressure was three times what she'd seen near the surface, due in part to a lower altitude, but mostly because this hollow was self-contained. 
Neither species had eyes, of course. They used fan antennae and scent instead. They were basically helpless. Droplets fell steadily or in periodic rains, and the chamber floor was pebbled with a thousand specimens. Vani collected several. But the mortality rate, while high, didn't seem enough to keep the bugs from outgrowing their food source. This pocket ecology was more than incomplete, it was unworkable. It was temporary. She was frustrated when she built the ghostling to help her, angry at him, afraid of dying in this impossible place. Bowman would have been a better companion. Vani wouldn't have tried so hard to control her, and the mess she made of lamb was erratic, missing too much. She'd held back more than half of his mem files, but included the last. She wanted him to know why he died. She wanted him to be cautious, even timid. She didn't trust the result. Vani dug her way out of the bug's small world when her mecca reported a faint current of atmosphere half a kilometer away. She knew there were more vents nearby. The tremor was probably another aftershock. The bulk of the fallen vent was pressing out against the surrounding area, and as other networks collapsed, they also pushed down or sideways. She felt a long, low creaking sound. And suddenly the ice lurched, slamming at her. Then some larger section gave way, and Vani fell, tumbling into the white. A queer thought struck her as she labored to free herself, sinking ever deeper through the loose hunks and powder, certain after the third hour that she was in her grave. This was no ocean into which she was descending, it was this moon's sky. Caught here, native species had no concept of anything further up. They would always look for the mountains or the liquid seas below. She began to dig down instead of sideways, not fighting the avalanche, but using it to her advantage, sifting, swimming. Finally, she fell into a world of rock, a honeycomb of soft lava worn open at one time by running water. Whether it was an island suspended in the ice or a true mountain, she couldn't say yet, but she had at last come down out of the frozen sky. 17. The cavern seemed to stretch as her fear grew, and Vani stayed near the wall of hieroglyphs, trying to anchor herself. Deep radar let her track the new creatures while they were still out of sight, and there were twelve bodies in the swarm, banging off the walls and ceiling of a gap. Sixty meters. Fifty. Vani held her explosives. There were too many entrances, and she had only four half sticks. She couldn't throw one until they were almost on her, until there was no chance they'd bounce back out of whichever opening they chose. Forty. They would catch her if she ran, she knew that, but the adrenaline was like a hundred blades inside her. It was like them, savage and quick. They're in the second tunnel. Suddenly there was less rock in the way, and Lamb drew each body into clear resolution. They were no longer just overlapping blobs, they were amphibians. Christ, you said. They were bigger, with longer arms and different skin, cousins of the ones she'd fought, but their own breed. There was no question about it. To creatures that saw and spoke in sonar, this breed would stand apart from the others, if for no 
other reason than the pitch of their voices. And it wasn't this race that had written on this wall. The size of the carvings was wrong. The surface texture. These hieroglyphs belonged to the smaller species. War. It explained so much. Even when the environment was calm, they had been tearing at each other, fighting for ground and for resources, and that competition had been more than either side was able to withstand. Here they come. In an instant, her chance to kill them cleanly would be gone, and Vani had learned not to hesitate. But she had also remembered who she was and why she'd ever come here. Lamb, talk to them. You have to try to talk to them, she yelled, and the suit bit down even as the amphibians swept into the cavern, a crisscrossing wave of bodies high and low. At the same time, Lamb emitted sonar bursts in exactly the same tone as theirs, greeting them, ducking one shoulder as he drew on everything he'd learned. It was the right decision. She believed that. This was a new population altogether, and there was every reason to hope that they would answer her. 18. Alone, in silence, she thought about her dead friends too much, and kept as busy as possible with maps and data instead. The atmosphere in these big lava tunnels was mostly water vapor, carbon dioxide and the ever-present nitrogen, along with trace poisons. It was also warm, only a few degrees below freezing. Vani assumed she must be inside the thin mountain, stoked by thermal heat. Giant lumps of ice grew up from the floor beneath long stalactites, and slow-flowing lakes made waves and swirls against the humps of rock. Beautiful. She tried to let it cheer her as she picked her way through the jumble, following a soft wind. The pressure differential indicated an even higher temperature somewhere ahead, maybe a vent. First contact was a jolt. She had seen a few pale spores of fungus, but only the ice truly grew and thrived here, so when her radar picked out another sun shape on the wall, she assumed it was a carving. Then it moved. Hey! She started closer, stopped. She didn't want to scare the little thing. She was three hundred meters off, and there was some chance she was still unobserved. Maybe that was best. She didn't have the training, and the choice she made could affect eight billion lives across the solar system, the human race colliding with another for the first time. It was tremendous beyond imagining. But she didn't waver long. She just didn't have it in her to walk away. Not here, not now. More than that, she needed this success to balance everything that had gone wrong. Besides, what the hell was the starfish breathing? Vani felt a stab of longing and pride at the thought, a bittersweet mix. Lamb and Bowman would have given anything to be here, but she would do the job alone. The creature had disappeared, so she paced slowly in that direction, sweeping radar and x-ray up the wall. Nothing. Nothing. Then she found one cold crevice full of bodies, eight of them, and yet she saw no exhalations in infrared. For that moment she forgot everything else, though she was careful not to get too close or even to let her smile show inside her visor. Teeth might be threatening. 
She knelt to make herself small and drew one finger in the dirt, trying to communicate just the idea of communicating. She must be a complete surprise. Furless, streamlined, they had almost certainly evolved in water. No skeleton and a lot of muscle, no front or back that she could see, only top and bottom. In fact, they had no visible orifices except on their undersides, a few slits that she took to be gills, and a single, well-protected beak evidently used both as mouth and anus. Very basic digestion. Two hearts, brain. They were perfect, she thought, small enough to subsist, big enough to build, clever and brave. For creatures this size to cover as much distance as they had was remarkable— and spoke again of strategy and engineering, the incredible success of mastering their environment. Their lungs were too compact to hold air for long, so they must have evolved some trick of oxygen compression, saturating their blood, breathing water or good air before leaving one safe place for another, homes and farms. But where? That was all the time she had. Their assault was immediate, and Vani twisted back, stunned. The first body struck her helmet off-center, attacking the gear block. Others collided with her arms and chest, trying to bring her down. Vani staggered, but the suit's musculature kept her upright. Her retreat was confused. She tripped over a boulder and fell, three bodies still clawing at her. She stood like a drunk, overwhelmed. But most of them had leapt away, and Vani struck wildly at the one on her face, anything to break free. They pushed the roof into her. A hundred flecks clattered against her suit, and she looked up just as a ragged hunk the size of a car slammed down. The missing ones had gone straight up and scrabbled in the rock, digging and prying, using themselves as pistons to accelerate their weapon. They were ruthless. Impact killed two of their own and hurt three more. It also destroyed her. Inside her helmet, her skull crashed against the buckling armor, where raw circuitry scraped open one cornea. Then she hit the ground. System's failure was total for 3.3 seconds, and Vani gasped in the dark, bleeding, twitching. 19. She saw the new breed react to Lamb's greeting as they came across the cavern. There was no mistaking it, even in flight, the ripple of motion. Their bodies shared an idea, maybe a command? And Vani realized for the first time that they also used the fine cilia beneath their arms to convey information, lifting one tentacle or more to show dense, wriggling patterns. Lamb was crippled by her shape, of course, and also canny enough not to try to mimic the hieroglyphs exactly, or what they'd seen in the smaller amphibians. The warring breeds might have separate languages, so he was left to improvise, and held Vani down in an uncomfortable ball, stuttering her fingers alongside her belly. Her visor churned with sun shapes as he compared these twelve individuals with Sims and real data— and there was another ripple among them. Please, she thought. Please. But he'd kept the half-sticks against her forearm with a magnetic lock, and now released two with a click. Watch out. 
the split wave of amphibians struck the ceiling and floor and did not cling there or bounce away. Instead, the wave collapsed, ricocheting straight into her. Please! They came with their beaks open, shrieking. They came with their arms thrown wide to grasp and tear. Auto-assault. She wept for them, monsters, all of them. No curiosity, no patience, no promise. The intelligence she knew existed here was stunted and cold, like everything inside this world. Lamb smashed her fist up through the one in front and then turned to swat the next. The rest never reached her. Do it, she said, and he put both charges into the wall of hieroglyphs and ducked under a wide blast of shrapnel. Then she turned and ran. The four survivors kept after her, of course. Vani had seen it before, using most of her explosives against the smaller breed, hoping the show of force would be enough. But this clan was no different. Even with two-thirds of the group dead or bleeding out, they were relentless. She reached a tunnel and jumped straight into the ceiling, crushing the one on her shoulder. Lamb pulled at the rock with both hands and nearly canceled her momentum, ripping debris out over her head. The shower hit the next two, and Lamb kicked down again, arms out, clubbing the last of them. Vani left the wounded to live or die, knowing it was probably a mistake, knowing she would always be wrong for trespassing. For nearly an hour she heard them behind her, crying into the mountain. The echoes faded as she climbed, except once, when there were fresh voices. Reinforcements? A new breed, altogether? The sonar was too diffuse to be sure, and she was glad, dimly, muffled in exhaustion and grief. She climbed. She climbed without end, and even carried by the suit she passed her limit, tendons straining. Something in her back gave out above the pelvic bone and seemed to grind there. And in her mind, it was the same. One hurt that went deeper than the rest. In the monotony of the catacombs, even after she dug her way into a vent, there was no escaping it. The leaning shaft up through the ice could have been exactly where Lamb and Bowman had died, although her radar showed almost no dust or mineral deposits within the melt. Good. Geysers and swells meant instability. This vent looked solid, and she thought she could make it even without bolts and wire, although her hands were sore and beaten. She climbed. She climbed slowly, testing the ice, scanning ahead. At last there was a new sound, the rescue beacon of a probe overhead. Vani tried to laugh, and Lamb returned the signal the only way he could, a cacophony of ELF and radar pulses. We made it, Vaughn. Yes. Let's wait here. Can you wait? This hand is damaged in four places, and the elbow's not much better. I don't want to risk a fall. Yes. But she still couldn't sleep, hanging there, several hundred meters up, and so much more to go. She kept one file open on her visor and let the data burn into her, staring through it even when she lifted her head to watch above. Lamb had put together a rough translation of the hieroglyphs, and with it the beginnings of the truth. She was wrong. 
The amphibian's all-or-nothing behavior was not animal stupidity or rage. It was deliberate. It was a survival trait. They had been confronted with aliens throughout their existence, creatures from other catacombs and separate lines of evolution, and that they had never seen anything like her before, that she aped their language or wore metal. None of this would ever stop them for a moment. Outsiders were rivals. Outsiders were food. Until they could understand, if they could understand, they would always react that way. The warring breeds she'd fought seemed to be the remnants of an empire that had once reached the top of the frozen sky. At one time there had been a long, calmer period in Europa's lifespan. Maybe some day there would be again. The hieroglyphs were short histories intended to aid the next alliance to rise from the chaos, and she had been nothing but a path of destruction through whatever civilization they had managed to hold on to. It wasn't what they deserved. The mecha gathering above her were American, but relayed ESA signals. In a heartbeat, Lam had the search grid and told her how far she'd strayed from where she went in. Nine kilometers. She was also still two-thirds of a kilometer beneath the surface, so the mecha rigged a molecular wire and dropped other lines around her. Life support. Suit support. Datacom. Vani let go of the ice. She spun slightly as the machines lifted her away, but the surge of voices was more intense. The men and women up top had accessed her records as soon as the data line connected, and at a glance her mem files must be a running nightmare. She still had blood and black rock caught in every joint of her suit, the ruined helmet and battle-worn gloves. She knew what it must look like. Someone murmured, Vonderak, my God! But she was still thinking of the amphibian's potential, and of the debts she owed, both to her friends and to the colony she devastated. We have to help them, she said. The End Jeff, thank you very much for that. Again, copyright is Mr. Jeff Carlson's. Don't go pinchy pinchy. You can listen to it by all means and spread it around the, the entire universe, but don't go making any money off it. And Amy H. Sturgis. Amy, you are a little tinker. What a great reading that is. Amy's got, you know, and this is what I kind of like about Amy's voice. Amy's got, and I, I, I hope she doesn't mean <laughs> being cheeky here, but she's got this kind of little punky she can turn this kind of little punky girl voice narration into it. And I think it just, for some of the characters in science fiction, that is, it's a cracking voice Amy's got. So Amy, thank you very much. So there you have the Oral Delights, show number 35. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope the thought of me with my shirt off and flip-flops off has not been too um, gut-wrenching for you and you've enjoyed the fiction. Do listen out for the new round table. Things have changed on the round table drastically. That's all I'm saying. Tune in Saturday to find out. And I hope you like the first of the engine room episodes. That's where, and actually they're, they're great to record, you know what I mean? It's just, it kind of 
I seem to be able to offload all my kind of cares and worries about the show to Grant. <laughs> okay, throw all that kind of muck on Grant. And it's nice to just kind of hear what Grant's up to and what he's reading and kind of what his difficulties are with kind of trying to get stories out, wangle stories from authors. So do join next the following Saturday for the next instalment of The Engine Room. So please, again, send emails in. I love emails. I'm not just kind of talking to the four walls let us know someone listening to this show i hope you enjoyed it you know please please if you do find any of this kind of rewarding what we're doing the kind of starships over do you know think about donating it just so kindly helps thank you so much in advance if you do and don't forget if you want to kind of pop over and sign up monthly there will be that extra kind of sanatorium show coming very soon now as I'm recording this, at this moment, I haven't got the function where I can kind of preset shows. And I'm going away within a week, I think, to off to Italy for our holidays. So I don't know if the shows are going to be there or not. Hopefully, by the time I go, I've had another show out. And I might be able to say, yes, it's going to be going okay. We'll have some shows out. Or maybe you might have just a quiet two weeks without the sofa. Engines down, resting. But anyways... Do, again, pop over the forums, say hello over there, and do drop us some emails and just say hello. It's very nice to get emails. Until next time, my good sofa notes, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.